The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We greet you here in the nave of Marsh Chapel, whether you are present with us in the nave at 735 Commonwealth Avenue or listening live over the radio at 90.9 WBUR throughout New England or listening over the internet at WBUR.org around the world or listening later via the podcast at bu.edu chapel. My name is Brother Larry Whitney. I have the privilege of serving as University Chaplain for Community Life here at Marsh Chapel. And it is uh, incumbent upon me to note that uh, as the Boston Athletic Association 10K is wrapping up out front as we speak, we are granting absolution for tardiness this morning if you struggled to make your way across Commonwealth Avenue. Thanks be to God, our many guests here at, this morning at Marsh uh, have made it safe and sound, hale and whole. We greet uh, first our guest choir from Glen Memorial United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, immediately adjacent to the Emory University campus. We greet their senior pastor, the Reverend Mark Westmoreland. Thank you for being here with us today. A very special greeting to their music director, Michael Dodderman, a distinguished alumnus of the Master of Sacred Music program right here at Boston University. As it turns out, this is Atlanta transposed to Boston Day here at Marsh Chapel, as our guest preacher also hails from that fair city. We greet Dr. Robert Franklin, the James T. and Berta R. Laney Professor of Moral Leadership at Emory University, Director of the Religion Program at the Chautauqua Institute, and President Emeritus of Morehouse College. Thank you for being with us this week and next Sunday, Dr. Franklin. We are blessed and very much looking forward to your voice in the pulpit today. Dear friends, be greeted whether here or far, and let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. O Lord, make us have perpetual love and reverence for your holy name, for you never fail to help and govern those whom you have set upon the sure foundation of your loving kindness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. As we gather once again on this Sunday morning, we turn our hearts once again. We turn our hearts in prayers of confession and repentance, remembering all that has passed, all that has been done, and all that has been left undone throughout the past week. We ask for God's blessing and mercy as the as the choir sings our Kyrie. Dearly beloved, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the second epistle of Timothy, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Remind them of this and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the words of truth. Avoid profane chatter, for it will lead people into more and more impiety. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 22 with the antiphon. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. Poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Their hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Let us stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke, chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Glory to you, O Lord. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, 
and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swineherd saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. I am honored to stand in this pulpit for the first time. By no means is it my first visit. The last time I visited Marsh Chapel was 1978. I came here to visit and to view a video documentary of the late, great Howard Thurman. A memorable evening that night, we had an opportunity to visit and catch up on old Morehouse stories. It is good to arrive in Boston on a splendid summer morning. About one month ago, my wife Cheryl and I were here in the city to celebrate the graduation of my daughter Imani, who earned law and public administration degrees from a, another small school located on the Charles River that will go unnamed. It was winter then, one month ago, in Game of Thrones lingo, winter had come and it remained <laughs> until today. Well, I'm a proud member of the Marsh Chapel diaspora. Dean Robert Hill knows, as you all must, that you have a vast audience across the nation, indeed across the globe, and you provide part of the Sunday morning soundtrack to people who are traveling, resting, brunching, and commuting to their own house of worship. And so I commend your national and international outreach. It was my great pleasure to invite and welcome Dean Hill, his lovely wife Jan, to be the weekly chaplain at the historic Chautauqua Institution in Western New York just two years ago. He was masterful, and Chautauqua loved Dean Hill. And I hope that all of you listening now and worshiping in this chapel now will discover Chautauqua Institution and determine to come and visit when you can. The epistle for this morning's focus is a challenging and inspiring message to those who would lead. What better place to discuss leadership than Boston University? Your presidents, and I note President Daniel Marsh, after whom this chapel is named, the former president of this university, your deans or faculty have been legendary in shaping generations of visionary and hopeful moral leaders and theologians who have helped to lead movements for social equity. I have great admiration for so many who have served and continue to serve here at the School of Theology, Dean Mary Elizabeth Moore, my old friend. And this university has supplied some of the great scholars and public intellectuals. And I note the departed, recently departed Dr. Adelaide Crawford, uh, my friend Nancy Ammerman and Charles Stith, and soon to retire Walter Fluker. Of course, with Howard Thurman and Martin Luther King's years here at Boston University, I think that uh, Morehouse and BU have something of a shared custody of their legacies. And speaking of leadership, I like the story that was told during A. Pope's visit to America 
The Pope was being chauffeured, and he got bored after several days of this, and so he asked, or maybe he actually directed the driver to allow him to drive for just 10 or 15 minutes. He always wanted to drive on an American highway. At one point along the highway, as some of us are wont to do, his foot got a bit heavy, and he was up to 90 miles an hour. The state trooper pulled him over and assessed the situation. He looked a bit confused. He walked back to his car and called the chief of police. He said, Chief, I have stopped someone for uh, super speeding, but I'm not sure I should write a ticket. I think he's an important person. The chief said, is it the governor? Well, no. Is it the speaker of the house or a senator? No. Well, who is it? I don't know, but the Pope is his driver. <laughs> the Apostle Paul was very concerned about the state of leadership in the early church. Think of that unusual environment for a moment. They were all familiar with rabbis and their formation, many years of study and apprenticeship. They knew something about the preparation of philosophers in the Hellenistic and Roman worlds. Were they to be more like rabbis or more like philosophers? And if the end of the world was imminent, did they really need to study at all? Or should they be measured by the intensity of their religious experience and passion for preaching? These and other questions were in the air and in the culture of the early church. And even as Paul was inventing many of the norms and practices of early Christianity, he knew that having leaders of integrity, intelligence, courage, emotional maturity, spiritual depth, and humility were important. Those questions and concerns about the quality of leadership were prominent in the early church, as Paul wrote this epistle to Timothy, and they are prominent in our culture today. Here again the words, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. Well, schools of theology represent one strong approach to leadership formation for the church. But the university at large should be a center for leadership development for all kinds of leaders leaders whom I'd like to call this morning moral leaders. Our text conveys anxiety about leadership, and at this hour in history, our republic is in need of moral leadership. There are several reasons why I believe this to be the case. First, democracy requires virtue. Nearly all of the founding fathers and mothers believed this. And they maintained that citizens must insist upon the moral behavior of their leaders. Abraham Lincoln said, There is always just enough virtue in this republic to save it, sometimes none to spare, but still enough to meet the emergency. End quote. How do we stimulate conversations about virtue, goodness, decency, and civility? that will not put people to sleep. America as a new republic was born and nurtured in the incubator of virtue. And yet, to be honest, right alongside virtue, there were many other competing, conflicting interests. This is our debt to pursue a democracy with virtue, our debt to John and Abigail Adams, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, and Eleanor Roosevelt. Democracy requires virtuous citizens. Second, we are now in a state of steady moral decline, almost a nosedive. David Crary of Associated Press put it this way, quote, public cynicism about America's moral standards is high as evidenced in the annual Values and Morals poll conducted by Gallup since 2002. In the latest poll released last June, a record high 
of respondents rated moral values in the U.S. as poor, and only 14% rated them excellent or good. We need the virtue conversation because we are slipping. Standards of public morality are eroding. We are losing ethical ground. Third, moral decline can be contagious. These trend lines of lying, cheating, theft, hatred, violence, racism, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, anti-immigrant sentiments, did I mention lying, and so on, they will not suddenly stop and reverse themselves. According to Andrew Cullison, a philosophy professor who leads DePaul University's Prendel Institute for Ethics, and I quote, the perception that unethical behavior is increasingly commonplace could have a snowball effect, contagion. People think that if moral standards have eroded, why should they play by the rules? If they've lost trust in some entity or institution, then that organization has lost the right to their compliance with the rules, end quote. Now, I would note, as a former college president, that schools that have been involved in the admissions for sale scandal recently must be very careful of the corrosive effects of passivity and small solutions. Those schools and leaders should treat and address the human proclivity for deception and winning at all costs, lest those who have played by the rules begin to focus on ways to game the university to get their share. Fourth, this contagion can be deadly. This moral decline threatens to destroy our families, our schools, congregations, communities, indeed our nation. But it will also bore into individual human souls, emptying and hollowing out that part of us that can appreciate poetry, opera, philosophy, music, art, and spirituality. We will become rotten people. We will not fund the education of, of children who do not look like our children and grandchildren. We will resist being told of our unconscious biases. We will become numb to offenses, private and public. When the President of the United States behaves badly, we will sigh in resignation. We will learn to make peace with evil and mediocrity. Or what else can we do? Professor Cullison observed, and I quote, it's the objective truth that norms of conduct are being violated. Where people differ is how outraged they are. If you're getting what you want in terms of policy, you'll be more willing to look the other way, end quote. And Jordan Lebowitz, a spokesman for the watchdog group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, noted that several of President Trump's cabinet appointees have been the subject of ethics investigations. He said, and I quote, we're seeing a pattern of not caring about ethics that we've not seen before. It sets a dangerous precedent for future administrations that once ethical norms are pushed aside and nothing is done about it, this might become the new normal, end quote. And so this morning, we can understand the Apostle Paul's anxiety about leadership, and that anxiety is bipartisan. Recently, a biographer of Dr. King published an article alerting us to new FBI surveillance files that contain more negative information about Dr. King's private life. Scholars, civil rights activists, and friends of King have been swift to decry this disclosure. They urge the public to remember the source for the scurrilous information. The FBI wanted to destroy leaders like King during the period, and so we should be skeptical. Source criticism is essential for assessing these reports. And second, the evidentiary foundation for the claims is thin. Apparently, there are a few notes scribbled in the margins of a surveillance file. And so evidence criticism is also essential. But all that said, 
If any of the information is true, it must be reckoned with and his bad behavior acknowledged and condemned. King knew better, and we must expect our leaders to act consistently on what they know to be good and true and beautiful. The two final observations on this tawdry matter. First, the material about people's private lives garnered through sleazy means does not belong in the public domain. We have no right to access this zone any more than the government should pry into and publicize what happens in your household. It doesn't belong in the public domain. And second, although we must critique and reassess all leaders in light of new information, if we expect all moral exemplars to be perfect, we will have none. Thanks be to God for grace to redeem us when we demonstrate that we are miserable sinners struggling to go forward. As Oscar Wilde reminds us, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. I'm completing a manuscript now on moral leadership and I maintain that moral leaders are women and men who lead with integrity, courage, and imagination aimed at serving the common good while inviting others to join. Moral leaders are nurtured in communities of care and discipline, communities with high expectations and high demands. That's part of what Jesus did to differentiate the Jesus movement from the hundreds of other religious movements and communities that sprouted in the ancient world. Jesus made ethical demands of his followers. He raised the ethical bar of what love meant, of what love required. He illustrated the power of forgiveness. As Desmond Tutu says, without forgiveness, there is no future. Jesus illustrated the power of reconciliation. He spoke about a father one day who loved his child, but the child left home in search of something more exciting, something better, something shinier than he had at home. And while that child was out enjoying his life of radical freedom and no responsibility, he hit the wall. He lost everything, his possessions, his health, his friends, and his self-esteem. But he knew that he could go home, and so he tried it. And the parents surprised him with grace. I believe that moral leaders are students and practitioners of the moral life. Issues like forgiveness and love and power and justice, moral leaders are students and practitioners. Second, moral leaders know how to frame issues as moral issues in ways that invite others to lean in. Third, moral leaders strive to live exemplary lives, but when they fail to, they are undaunted, and yet they are wiser and humbler. Fourth, moral leaders extend their impact by investing in enduring institutions. And five, Moral leaders live well, but they also die well. They teach us how to die. Often they are targeted at the end of their lives by the state. Consider Socrates, Jesus, Gandhi, Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm, and Martin. But they work to advance the cause until the last day of their lives. Our focus on moral leaders should be balanced with consideration of the ecosystem or communities that encourage or discourage goodness and righteousness. Alexis de Tocqueville, French observer in the 19th century observed, and I quote, the greatness of America lies in, not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. Is that true? Does American greatness lay in self-repair? I raised this question three weeks ago in an adult class at the Glenn Memorial United Methodist Church on the campus of Emory University. So delighted that Pastor Westmoreland and the choir are here today. The class was evenly divided in response. 
Yes, America's DNA includes progressive elements and a pragmatism. We want to find a better way. On the other hand, no. We are as capable of denial and self-deception as any other nation. We will try all the other safe, comfortable alternatives first. How do we repair ourselves as a people? How do we repair our nation? That is part of our struggle today. It is part of the mix of the political culture of this hour and certainly part of the ministry of moral leaders, of each of you listening now. Remember this wisdom from Rabbi Abraham Heschel. Quote, the cure of the soul begins with a sense of embarrassment. Embarrassment at our pettiness, prejudices, envy, and conceit. Embarrassment at the profanation of life. A world that is full of grandeur has been converted into a carnival." End quote. This is America. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. But we are being converted into a carnival. A great nation does not show tolerance for explicit anti-Semitism and white supremacy in Charlottesville or wherever. A great nation does not round up terrified immigrants fleeing from terror and send them back to probable stigma and social death. A great nation does not avoid the moral discernment that comes from reckoning with centuries of enslaving other free human persons. A great nation does not observe its elected legislators scattering in avoidance when decisions about climate change policy are before them. A great and prosperous nation does not offer more tax breaks to billionaires before finding ways to provide affordable housing, education, and health care to its least advantaged members. And so, Marsh Chapel, Marsh Chapel Diaspora, let us ask God for integrity, for courage, and imagination to step forward and lead to the America that is waiting to be repaired and completed. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, land where our parents died, land of the pilgrim's pride from every mountainside, let freedom ring.
Dear friends, as we turn our hearts and minds to prayer, I invite you to assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remaining standing, being seated, kneeling, or coming to the communion rail according to your tradition. As we join together in our call to prayer, lead me, Lord. As we pray, I invite you to respond to each petition. We pray to you, O God. That this day may be holy, good, and joyful, we pray to you, O God. That this and all our days may be full of your praise, we pray to you, O God. That we may offer to you our worship and our work, we pray to you, O God, that we may walk before you in the paths of righteousness and peace. We pray to you, O God, that we may strive for the well-being of all creation. We pray to you, O God, that you will bless your people and lift them up forever. We pray to you, O God that in the pleasures and pains of life we may know the love of Christ and be thankful. We pray to you, O God, that you will guide and protect us by your Holy Spirit and bring us with your saints to glory everlasting. We pray to you, O God. And we commend ourselves and all for whom we pray to the mercy and protection of God, praying together the prayer that Jesus taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be always with you. 
We greet you once again here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and invite you to participate in our ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. We express words of gratitude to Dr. Franklin for bearing the word of God in our midst this morning and to the Glen Memorial United Methodist Church Choir under the direction of Michael Dodderman for leading us in prayer and praise in song and silence this morning. We note that uh, after the service, our, uh, our coffee hour will be outside on the plaza as the weather has turned back to sunny. Uh, we note also that in two weeks' time, we'll be having our annual Independence Day barbecue following the service on Sunday, July 7th. We encourage you to participate by contributing food and drink and fellowship. Please see uh, Helena in the narthex after the service to sign up for that, and also to turn in your chapel information uh, sheets that you can find in, inserted into your bulletin so that we can keep up with you and your movements and activities and be in touch. As the ushers wait upon us for the morning offering, we invite you to meditate upon Jeffrey Ames' anthem, Let Everything That Hath Breath. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
We give you thanks, O God, this day for life and work and peace. Now bless these gifts and the givers, we pray, to the work of ministry in this place and throughout the world. Amen. Yesterday I was clever, and so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. And from Rabbi Maimonides, the world is equally balanced between good and evil. Our next act will tip the scale. Go forth now in the peace and power of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> 